The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We have been going through the book of 1 Corinthians. Last week we talked about the end of 1 Corinthians 14, and this week we pick up in 1 Corinthians 15. This is kind of the biggest chapter, the final section of 1 Corinthians, and this is a, a chapter that is all about the resurrection. You might call this whole chapter, What's the Resurrection Got to Do with Anything?, and the first 11 verses what we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry about it. Um, we'll have the links, uh, the verses up on the screen as we work through this. Or you can go look up uh, a Bible on a web browser. But we are going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 1 to 11. And then uh, I'll pray and we'll get into this together. So let's get into 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received, and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I would deliver to you, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because, of the perse- because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word together, I pray that you would help us to see the riches of who Jesus is, to see your good news, and to enjoy all that you have done for us, this gift that we receive in Jesus, this world-changing gift. And so I pray that you would stir our hearts and renew our affections for Jesus this morning. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, what I want to do is begin us begin by talking about this passage by a, a little bit of some reflections on this last week. The, this last week, uh, maybe the last week or two has been incredibly insane, and it seems like almost every hour something has been coming out or news has been updated. And the reality is the way that that COVID-19 and the news about that has uh, come into our lives is very similar uh, in a certain sense to what this passage is talking about, because COVID-19, the reality is that there is something that is happening. There is a reality that is going on with this virus that is infecting people, and lots of people are getting sick, and some are dying. There is a way in which it's hitting us. Some of us disbelieving. Some of us are very anxious. Some of us are fearful. Some of us are a little trepidatious. Uh, it is hitting some of us in different ways. And then we're talking about it uh, to each other. And then we're responding to the way other people are engaging with it. All the while, there is this reality of some objective reality going on with this virus and how it's impacting the world that we don't quite understand. And yet it is a, a reality that we can't ignore and we have to reckon with. And maybe some of the scariest parts of COVID-19 is that um, it has no logic. A virus is literally uh, just a little bit of some DNA in a little package 
that comes in and messes everything up. It's not even a bacteria that kind of like is trying to eat stuff. It's just a little bit of DNA that gets inserted, and it's a lot. It causes a lot of problems. Maybe that's a part of it that's most fearful is that um, there's no logic to what's going on with the virus. Um, in s- similar but a very different way, the gospel breaks into the world, and it is an objective reality that we have to reckon with. We have to respond to it. Just like with COVID-19, we have to do something, whether it's not believe it, uh, d- diminish the effect of it, uh, have, be anxious about it. Whatever our response is, it is something that requires us to respond. And the gospel comes into the world, and it is very similar. It is an objective reality of what has happened. God has done something, and he has done something in Jesus to change the world. And in the resurrection of Jesus, he has turned all of our categories upside down. And it is something now that we have talked about. We have a whole book about it that has t- is telling us people who actually saw the resurrection, who saw Jesus die and was raised, and they saw what it meant in light of what the rest of the book says, and now they're telling us about it, and we have to respond. But the, the difference is that with everything going on with the realities of COVID-19, uh, it is bad news. <laughs> but with God's story and what he is doing, it is good news. It is an objective reality that requires us to respond, and it does not allow us to agree to disagree. We must respond to what's going on in God, God's story. And so here's what we're going to do. This whole passage is about this objective reality, this reality, whether we like it or not, this story, whether we want it to be true or not, of what God has done and how we respond to it. So here's the main point of our passage. Receive the good news of all that God has done for you in Jesus. The good news is this word, um, it's a longer word for just the simple word gospel. Some of us might hear gospel and think of uh, Grammy Awards and gospel music. Uh, Some of us might hear of gospel and think of old gospel, timey um, churches, or just kind of think of more biblically just the simple reality of who Jesus is and what he's done. Gospel comes from this old English word, Godspell. Maybe some of you remember that. Uh, It was a famous uh, play um, or uh, theater performance from the 1970s about the story of Jesus from the Gospel of Mark. And Godspell is really just this word that says God's story, God's news, and that's where we get this idea of the gospel being good news for us. And so as we're looking through this passage, it is good news of what God has done for us. And so we're going to be basically looking at what is this good news and what does it do to us. So the first thing we're going to look at in these first verses, verses 1 through 2, God's good news reminds us of his reality. So let's look at these verses together. God's good news reminds us of his reality. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. You're picking up here how this gospel is something that was handed to Paul, right? He received it, and he's handing it off to them. You kind of pick that up in verse 3 just a little bit. I delivered to you that which of first importance, that which I also received. This gospel is an objective package, an objective reality that comes to us, and Paul is reminding us of it here in these last verses of 1 Corinthians. It is a gospel that he started the book out with, and he is now reminding them. In the beginning of 1 Corinthians, he says in chapter 2, uh, verse 2, he says, I preached, I delivered to you, I, de- I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's how he begins the book. And now, as over the last year, we've been tre- preaching through this book, 
we're at the end of the book, and he ties it in. It's this, the beginning, the bookmarks of the gospel, of the Christian life. You have the beginning, gospel, all the issues that they've got going on, good news for bad Christians, because we're all kind of trying to figure this out and fumbling along. He's going through, uh, weaving the gospel through all their issues, and then he ends with a clear declaration reminding us, okay, we've worked through all these issues, through chapters 2, 3, 4, all the way up to chapter 14. Now I want to remind us, swing back, we're going to close out with the gospel. This is, this is an objective reality that we must wrestle with, and what is that reality? This is what I preach to you, what you received. It is the gospel in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, and he has this kind of future perspective, if, we, if you hold fast to the word, unless you believed in vain. You might call this the three tenses of salvation. God's gospel comes into our lives, and it's not just a, uh, a bit of a hallmark card, hey, just to remind you God loves you. It's not just kind of a little bit of an infomercial, like, hey, if you want to sign up for this, uh, you can get this great package. And by the way, it's two for one right now. And if you sign up right now for 20 bucks, we're going to throw in all this extra junk. No, this gospel story comes to us, and it is a reality that takes care of God's perspective on our past, our present, and our future. That's the three tenses of salvation, you might call them. This is, you are saved. You are being saved right now, and you will be saved. This is kind of what uh, Jade preached for us uh, back in the fall, where he preached through Romans 8 and the categories of justification, sanctification, and glorification. These are big theological words for the reality that something has happened to you in Jesus that changes your life completely from, from day one to now. Sanctification is this big word for saying you're being made more like Jesus. It is your life right now. And then you will be glorified. It is this future perspective of what God is going to do in making all things new in Jesus when he returns. These three tenses of salvation um, hold for us the reality that God is not just kind of showing us, hey, I love you, I hope you have a good time, and I'll see you at the end. He's actually taking care of our whole lives and putting our stories inside of his. You might, you might ask, is this a passage about, you know, can I lose my salvation or anything like that? That's really not the emphasis of this verse. The emphasis on this ver- and these verses is more on the reality that our faith holds to. Right? So you have, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, so this is the gospel, another phrase for the gospel, the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So if, you're, if your faith in Jesus was self-centered or I really just don't want to go to hell, I really don't care about Jesus, or I want to go and be with my Nana when I die or anything like that, that's not the gospel. The gospel is I want Jesus and everything he is for me uh, from God. I want everything that God has given to me in Jesus. Now, certainly we, we get all these other extra things thrown in of seeing our, our relatives and family that have died um, in heaven, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is the power of who you believe in, not the power of your faith. And there's, so there's a reality that, that faith in Jesus envelops you into the story of what God's doing. It, there's a bit like... Um, if you remember the, the never-ending story, I'm not, I know some of us are kind of binge-watching all these movies right now, and if you remember in the never-ending story, the, the main character gets enveloped. He's reading this book, and he gets enveloped into this reality, into this story. He More than just kind of like getting sucked into, like, I really love my Avengers movies, he's getting sucked into the story, inside the story. That's what our life is in, in God's reality. God's reality is so enveloping, this redeeming perspective of everything in our lives, of who we are, that he envelops us into his reality rather than the dark stories that plague us and haunt us at night. 
that is the reality of what it means to get sucked into God's story with, by trusting in Jesus, is that God's story that he envelops us into is, is less focused on our sin and weakness. Yes, there's sin and weakness in our lives. But the gospel that comes to us, in which you stand, Paul says, and in which you are being saved, it is all emphasis on God's activity and what he's doing. And God's activity and what he's doing is redemptive, it is saving, it is renewing, He's doing something in you that you could not do on your own. It is a story that is all about giving life to you. It is all about all the things that God sees as what he is producing in you that you do not deserve. That's the nature of the gospel. All right, sometimes we get all kind of hung up on little things. We get hung up on whether we fail to do the laundry or pay our taxes or if we yelled at our kids or stressed about this last week or... We struggle with big things. All of my life is I have avoided telling the truth. All of my life I have been doing this with other people. All of my life I have been an addict. Or whatever the story is, whatever your worst narrative about yourself, I don't know what your experience is, but my experience tends to go towards I dwell on the things that are the worst things about me. I tend to hear those stories about my own failures, my own incompetencies, my own sins, my own weaknesses, I hear them louder um, than I hear any other story. And Paul is here reminding us God's story is truer, deeper, more real than any story that you continue to plague, that continue to plague you. You see, uh, this is a story that is deeper and more true than anything that you would want in your own heart and mind. This is a story that gives life. The reality is that Whatever's going on with COVID-19, it is a story that is destructive, and it takes life. That's the story. Frankly, any story apart from God is one that takes life. God's story gives life. See, COVID-19, the best thing that can be true about it is that it will cause a mass halt to society. It will cause financial collapse. It will... uh, disrupt massive aspects of our lives. Unfortunately, some people will die from this virus, and it will continue to take and take and take. But God's story is one that continues to give. It continues to empower us. It continues to envelop us in a story that's bigger than our own. It continues to tell us truer things about our world than we could possibly hope for. It is a story that begins to tell us that death is being rolled back and all things sad are becoming untrue. It is a story of God's work that is, in some ways, a bit beyond the page of what we're initially reading in this life. And yet, when we begin to understand God's story, we see it all around us, in the lives of those around us in our church, in our community, in other churches, and we begin to see that God's story is a more real reality. And so that's where Paul's rooting us. He's, he's grounding us in, he's reminding us in God's reality. And so we're going to move here into verses 3 to 7, because the good news of God's story, God's, God's work in Jesus that we want to receive is not only that we are invited into this deeper reality of what God's done for us in Jesus, God's good news roots us in his promises. That's what we're going to be seeing here in verses 3 to 7. Verses 3 to 7, let me read them for us, and then we'll work through them together. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried buried, and was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, 
then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. We're going to pause there. Again, you see this objective reality that Paul is insisting on. These are all things that are true, whether Paul actually wants them to be true or not. They're things that he's received, right? He says, for I delivered to you of first importance the things that I received, right? This is actually probably a confession of the faith uh, from the earliest, earliest days of the church. A confession is basically to say, you know, you think about being on the witness stand, this is true, um, you know, so help me God. This is a true confession of the faith. This is a true reality that we just witness to, that we talk about and we say this is true. And so Paul's received this reality, and this is a part of what the gospel is. We don't get to speculate about how God saves us. We don't get to think through, okay, what would be the best way for God to to save me? Uh, because honestly, if, if I were to design that story and kind of figure that out on my own, um, it would be incredibly self-centered because it would be my thoughts over God's thoughts. Herman Bavinck has this line, without revelation from God, religion sinks back into, um, into pernicious superstition. Right? Whatever I would hope for God to be like, that would be pernicious superstition. It would be something that I would just kind of hope, you know what, if I were to write God's story on my terms, I would really like him to orbit around me, and then he would really not be God. I would be God. But this story tells a better story about the God that I could ever imagine, and this is what his story is like. It is about a death in my behalf. It is about a resurrection that I could never imagine, and then it is about a bunch of punks as God's witnesses. So here's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at this first thing. There's basically there's seven kind of statements in this confession, but there's really kind of three sections. So the first section we're going to look at is the cross here uh, in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Then he was buried. So just tag over into verse 4. What does it mean that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures? Is there any Old Testament verse you can think of that says, when Jesus shows up, he must die in our place? Well, there's not that literal verse. So yes and no. No, there's not that verse in the Old Testament but the way the Old Testament unfolds is that God persists in living with his people that have rejected him. And all along the way, this major issue of God's holiness and our sinfulness must be resolved. So you see this all the way back in the beginning of Genesis where, where Adam and Eve, they sinned against God. And so what do they do? Um, they try to hide themselves, and yet God pursues them. And what does God do? He makes a sacrifice to put animal skin on them so that he can be with them and continue to give his promises to them. We see this all through then the rest of the Old Testament. So you, you pick up here in Leviticus, right? Leviticus, the tagline for the book of Leviticus is where all Bible plans go to die. You know, this is where no, nobody really likes reading the book of Leviticus. And if you do, you, you really got some Bible weirdness going on in your life. The, the Leviticus is full of all these pictures of how we sin, and then God says, here's the atonement that you make. And they're very ritualistic, Right? Take the bird, cut the bird in half, rip the bird in half, cut the animal in half, all these very bloody images. But at the very beginning of the book of Leviticus is this very important phrase. He says in verse, uh, Leviticus 4.2, he talks about all of these things that are in the book of Leviticus, all these, here's how you atone for such and such sins. He calls them, this is basically all unintentional sins, like, whoops, sorry, I forgot. You know, it's kind of like, 
when I get angry and yell at my kids. It's not like I wake up in the morning and think, here's what I want to do. I really want to yell at my kids. It's just kind of like, wow, it, my kids are being kids, and I'm being a sinner, and then, oh, I get angry. Like, it's kind of like that idea of unintentional sins. Actually, the very things that we might think of as like the biggest sins in life, you know, breaking the top ten or the seven deadly sins or whatever, are kind of mentioned actually in, in Numbers 15, verses 30 and 31, where he calls them high-handed sins. And what's the, what's the penalty for high-handed sins? High-handed sins, people who commit high-handed sins must be cut off. It's this kind of blanket phrase for they must die. People who intentionally reject the story of God and who he is, they have to be cut off. So these pictures of how we deal with sin give us an indication of how does God deal with sin? Well, God deals with sin by coming and dwelling with his people, promising to take care of it, and then recognizing that anything that we do, even these ritualistic sacrifices all through the Old Testament, will never deal with the deeper problem. So when Jesus comes, we just read about it in our Bible reading um, that Alex uh, read for us earlier, Jesus takes on an actual human body. He comes in real human flesh. He is uh, totally the Son of God, and then he is totally a man. And it is a mystery how both those things work, the true at the same time. And the reason he takes on a full human, human body, lives as a full human life, and also the eternal son of God is that he must bear in his body the entirety of our sins. You see here, coming back here to verse 3, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. There is a pattern all through the Old Testament that is fulfilled in how Jesus dies. He is lifted up and cut off for all of our high-handed rejection of God. And because he is fully God, he can absorb fully the wrath of God in our place. This is a big theological term called uh, penal substitutionary atonement, right? The penalty for our sin, all that we would have, all our high-handed sins against God and all of our ignorant sins against God, all of them culminate in the death of Jesus Christ, it says here, in accordance with the scriptures for our sins. Right? That is what's going on here when Paul says for sins. Certainly you can think of Isaiah 53 and a number of places in the Old Testament. Ultimately, it is the whole pattern of the Old Testament lived out in the death of Christ for our sins. And that's why he says there at the beginning of verse 4 that he was buried. Right? It actually happened. He had a real body. He had a real death. And they sealed it up. Right? That, it is true and real. This is the good news of the gospel. God's story is that he pursues us so deeply and truly that he even goes to the furthest extent of what our sins have done against God, and he cuts off the wrath of God that we deserve. God's anger for what we've done against him. He stands in the place of our sins and what we, what we would earn for our sins, and he takes a punishment in our place. He looks at you and says, I'd... I'd I do not want them to die. I do not want them to be cut off. I do not want you to experience the wrath of God without any protection. And so just like a father covering his son against a blast from a bomb, he takes on the full wrath of God in our place, which includes his death. And so then, with his death in mind, we pick up here the second half of verse 4, that he was raised. This is the second set. The second major thing of the gospel story that Paul's uh, rooting us in, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So verse 4, then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
is that, what is this phrase going on here? Is this is there again like we were just saying? Is there an exact Old Testament verse that says and he will be raised in the third day? Not really. Um, the third day part is less important than the fact that he was raised. It did happen in three days, but it's not like there was an Old Testament verse that says um, when when God's son dies in our place for our sins, he's going to be raised in the third day. That, there's a couple of verses that talk about uh, three days. So uh, in um, Hosea chapter six. It talks about after three days we'll be restored to the Lord. I'm not really sure that's an exact reference to what Jesus' resurrection has in mind here. But more importantly, he was raised from the dead is, again, the pattern of the Old Testament. We just talked about all this this kind of depressing reality of the Old Testament of how God continues to pursue to be with us, and yet this whole reality of his holiness and our sinfulness has to be uh, fixed in the, in the death of Jesus. That culminates in the death of Jesus. But if you remember all these stories of the Old Testament where God is dwelling with his people, surprising and miraculous turn of events happen at every turn, right? You have one of the biggest pictures with, the, uh, with Abraham is that um, not only is he given a son at 100 years old, um, you know, pretty incredible at, at face value, uh, but then when he takes his son, God says, now I want you to sacrifice your son for me. When he takes his son up to the mountain to sacrifice his son for God, uh, he does not take a replacement, but he says that he's going to come back with his son, indicating that he believes that God will actually raise his son from the dead, even though he must kill his son. So we see a picture already in these Old Testament stories of resurrection, the presumption that God will raise the dead to life. We see here in the book of Exodus where God leads his people through um, out of Egypt. They make a sacrifice to pass for God's judgment to pass over them because they are no better or different than the Egyptians that are enslaving them. And yet God saves them by this atonement, the sacrifice of the lamb, and then he leads them out into his presence and his promises. We see this again um, in the book. Uh, there's general kind of pictures of this. You see um, Elijah raising a boy to life. You see in Psalm 22, the end of it, there's a sudden turn of events where the, the, the psalmist is saying, I was getting killed, I was getting killed, I was getting killed, I'm alive. Right, it's Psalm 16, Psalm 17, they have the same picture. I will arise and see you face to face. You have this happening in Ezekiel 37, where dead bones are brought back to life. You have this happening in Daniel 12, where the, where the dust will get bodies again and see God face to face. You have this happening in Isaiah 26, and you have it happening at the end of the book of Isaiah, in 65 and 66, where everybody is talking about being resurrected. So the resurrection of Jesus is the surprising turn of the worst story possible. Right? I've noticed that there's a lot of movies going on right now um, and shows where they talk about try to figure out what's going on in the afterlife. And it's because we all have this echo in our hearts. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Death is not a part of the real story. And so in God's story, he undoes death in such a radical way that he raises Jesus to life as the first fruits, right? Think about this next time where we're able to, the, the, the joy that we'll experience of being able to get together again in person. That'll, that'll be the, might be the first fruits of our post-COVID reality, right? Even more importantly, what would it be like to meet and see Jesus and our church family together after we've died? Jesus is the beginning of death's hold on the world being rolled back. And so that's what we see here in this story of what God's doing, of his promises fulfilled. If his promises are that I am the God of the living and not of the dead, remember from uh, Jesus said that in Mark 12, 27, if I'm the God of the living and not the dead, he wants a people that are alive and renewed 
and not uh, with gravestones over their heads. And so here we have then the witness, the third thing of what's going on here in, in God's story is that the witnesses. Now, I, we're not going to dwell to, a, a lot on this because it's pretty obvious at face value what's going on. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time after he appeared to the 12 and to Peter. Um, then he appeared, uh, most of whom are still alive, and some have fallen asleep. Right, what Paul's basically doing um, is he's rooting this in history. He's basically saying, like, if you don't believe me, go talk to so-and-so, you know, uh, Josiah or whoever it is, and just say, I heard that you saw Jesus raised from the dead. And, it's, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I, we were hanging out, and there's five of us. We were having a party, and then there was Jesus. You know, it's something like that. Um, it's some, some reality in which Jesus appeared to a bunch of people to say, look, I'm alive. I'm not a ghost. This isn't a, an imagination. You're not tripping out. You didn't too, smoke too much pot. Here's the reality. I am actually alive. I've got a real body, and I'm, I'm uh, making all things new. And so Jesus appearing to them creates this kind of uh, band of witnesses around him. And Paul pulls out three particular people that are helpful for us in remembering the type of people that Jesus wants to save. First, he calls him, calls him Cephas, or Peter. You remember that at the right before Jesus' crucifixion, Peter is called out um, at a community fire by a little girl for saying, saying, hey, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? And Peter's such a coward that he can't even confirm to a child, yeah, I'm one of, pe- one of Jesus' guys. Right? So Jesus, he wants in his band of witnesses, okay, I want cowards. I want cowards who, who are fearful and trembling and anxious. I want those people to witness to my resurrection. And then we have here, it, uh, verse 7, then he appeared to James. James, most likely who he's referring to here, is his brother. Um, and you remember from the gospel stories, none of Jesus' family, with the exception of baby Mary, uh, none of Jesus' family actually believed who he was. And you can imagine what it's like to grow up with Jesus as your brother. Uh, it's a little weird, right? If there's any sibling rivalry that exists within siblings, having Jesus for your sibling has got to be one of the worst to happen. It's like, no, he, he is actually perfect. Um, you know, he, he actually did not sin. He didn't actually punch his brother. He did actually perform a perfect job. You know, so you can imagine maybe some bitterness. And, uh, and then when Jesus is on the scene, you know, oh, my gosh, Jesus, did you hear his speaking tour? He sold out all these crowds. There's a little bit of some, like, you know, disdainful ambivalence. Those are the people that Jesus wants witnessing to who he is. Because James does come to faith in Jesus. People who are a little uh, religiously snooty, like, how could he be that guy? He wants those people to be a part of his witness. And then you have Paul included here as well, here in the last verses that we're going to get to. Paul, somebody who looked to persecute Jesus and his people, who was so committed to being anti-Jesus and anything that had to do with Jesus, and these crazy people who believed in free grace, uh, he persecuted God's people, right? Can you imagine uh, building a political platform and saying, you know what, um, I really want America's a number one enemy, uh, whoever, I'm afraid to give an example to, without giving too political. Whoever, you, you know, you think of whoever that is, I want them to be my vice president. You know, I want them to be on my cabinet. That's what putting Paul within this band of witnesses. You, you might call them all these punks that Jesus wants to make his uh, founding board members. These are the people that Jesus loves to have witnessing to who he is and what he's done, which is, I think, a part of us to say that people who are scared, ambivalent, antagonistic to Christ are still invited to experience his renewing power because he's kept his promises. 
if you're following the story, you might begin to feel a little bit of some hope that even Jesus wants you, but you might begin to feel a little bit of, how is this even possible? This almost sounds offensive. And that's the, that's the way the story is supposed to land on us. You see, in, in Romans 5, Paul tells us, he says in verse 5, chapter 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That means that in God's eyes, the ungodly includes, yes, the national terrorists and the blue-collar workers of our state. He has people in mind who work in offices and people who commit atrocities. He has in mind all people that stand opposed to God, and whatever their way, whatever their way of opposing God is, there is a virus of sin within us that must be dealt with. And the story in Jesus has taken the punishment and the full wrath of that virus on our behalf to inoculate that virus's effect in our lives. So that if you do not see yourself as ungodly, you will never know the goodness of God himself. If you do not see yourself as a part of this category of ungodly people, this ragamuffin punk group that really does reject God in your heart, then you really will never know the goodness of God's story to save you. That is the point of God's story, is that whatever your way of being ungodly has been, he has pursued you to make you a part of his witnesses, to make you a part of his family, to make you to sit down at his table to enjoy his presence with him without you having to contribute anything to it. We're going to see that how that plays out in Paul's life here. God's promises fulfilled give life and the other things in our lives, do they, all they do is they take things away. God is restoring and making all things new in Jesus. And it is something that we need to see clearly and to enjoy clearly so that we can receive all the joy and goodness of who God is for us in Jesus. And so do you see the value of this story? Do you see yourself in this story of what God's doing in Jesus? Do you see what he's doing to make all things new? Do you see how he is saving you from the worst parts about yourself? Do you see what he is doing on your behalf? Because if you see that, that is the beginning of true faith and not vain faith. That's the beginning of faith that sees the value of who God is, that sees the value of what God's doing for you in Jesus. It is the beginning of faith and is the essence of faith that will last until the end. The final thing that we're going to look at here is verses 8 to 11. God, God's good news renews us in his grace. So we've looked at how, it's, uh, how God's good news reminds us of his reality, and we've seen how God's good news roots us in his promises. All his promises are now yes for us, and then we're going to see how finally, just really quickly, God's good news renews us in his grace, verses 8 to 11. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So let's pause there. Paul is saying here, um, this, this phrase, um, an un, uh, verse, I'm sorry, verse 8, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles. That phrase, the one untimely born, it's a, it's a bit of a polite phrase. Paul is basically making this death analogy. Um, he was a miscarried child. He was an aborted child. He was dead. He had nothing to give God. He was absolutely, there was nothing left for God to do with him. He was absolutely useless to God. And yet, 
God comes and renews him, saves him by his free grace, forgives him of his sins, and now gives him Jesus' righteousness, and then treats him like his own son and uses him. Right? This picture of who, what God's doing in Paul is there so that for those of us who feel absolutely like, God could never give his attention to me. God would never point his eyes towards me. God would never be surprised and delighted in me. It is actually a part of the point of God's story is that, yeah, there's nothing about you that would grab God's attention, and yet he still chooses to, by as one untimely born, choose to seek and save and renew you as well as Paul. And so then Paul gives us a bit of a picture of what does it look like for somebody to be experiencing the renewal of God's grace here in these last few verses. He says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I, I, am, I am what I am. And his grace towards me is not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. I, I think there's almost kind of like four dynamics, a little bit of what's going on in Paul's experience of grace. You see humility over arrogance. You see, Paul would have been an arrogant man. He would have, you learn actually kind of through little bits and pieces through the Old Testament that he basically had the best education with the best teachers from the best family, from the best religious household at the time. And not only was he best the best Jewish uh, teacher at the time, but he also had, uh, because of his education and his Roman status, he could go between two different worlds. He had political power and religious power, and yet he sees all that for nothing and says, I, values himself as basically saying, like, I, I had nothing to offer God. You see that in his, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. He's amazed as much as anybody that God would choose him. You see, this identity of grace winning out in Paul over this identity of works. You see this, um, you, what we just kind of talked about, his whole resume of what he could do. He could have taken that and said, okay, I can offer this to Jesus, right? Uh, okay, all these other nerds in school, they can't do very much, but I'm a part of the varsity team and I'm the captain of the team and I have all this to offer to God in terms of his political power and how he can rechange and change the world. And he basically says, uh, you know what, I, I didn't really deserve any of this either, right? For I'm the least of the apostles. I'm, I'm actually even unworthy to be called an apostle, though I am an apostle, though I really probably shouldn't be called an apostle. You should put those guys on a different list and not me. But this picture of identity of grace of, look, I am what I am, but it's not because of anything that I've done. He's boasting in grace's activity in his life, God's activity in his life, rather than boasting in his accomplishments. Even after becoming a Christian, you know, Paul at this time is probably planted between 20 and 25, maybe upwards of 30 churches, um, and you don't see him kind of throwing that around, right? I mean, uh, I've planted one church, and it can kind of sometimes get to my head of like, man, I, I, we, I, we've planted a church here. And Paul's planted like 30, and he doesn't boast around about that, but he doesn't throw it around, yet he acknowledges, look, there is something that's happened but it's really not me. It's really more God's activity. You see that, right? By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me is not in vain. On the contrary, I, I did work harder than any of them, but you see how he ends this, though it was not I. It was the grace of God that was in me, right? Anything that I've accomplished, whatever churches I've, I've planted, whatever letters for the Bible that I've written, anything that I've done, it, Paul, me, had really very little to do with that. And then he ends with this, this broad love for God's work. You see this here in verse 11, whatever then, uh, whether then it was I or they, 
so we preached and so you believed. Sometimes, even after we've been a Christian for a long time, we begin to think that uh, my way is the better way to be a Christian. Um, we kind of get this, um, forgive me for using this, but uh, uh, this whole food spirituality of like our our selection's better than the rest. Really, if you want to do church right, if you want to do your spiritual life right, we're better. And Paul says, look, if it was us or Potunk Church, whatever, whatever it was, uh, we're just grateful that God worked. It, whether it was me or them, right, it, we're really just grateful that God worked in you. Because really, the, the, the end of the God's story and the effect of what it means to receive it is to be absolutely amazed I cannot believe, I cannot believe, given all the reality, all the circumstances, all the things that I have brought to the table, that God's flipped the table and then now given me everything in Jesus. Right? That's, that's what I see as the main point of this passage. And so now, rather than dwelling on all the things that have gone wrong in our life, what is God's renewal grace story in your life? I was recently talking to somebody in the church and they had this wonderful phrase. I was like, you got to write a book with that title. I want to be taking charge without taking control. People who, whose lives are now take, had been radically changed by the grace of God in your life so that rather than doing what we normally do, I've got to get everything right, I've got everything under control, or I've got everything on my terms, I've got to get everything perfect, rather than whatever, whatever your normal story would be apart from God, God is now changing you by his grace to be what you are in Jesus Right? Somebody who's not controlled by your sins and not controlled by your obsessions and not controlled by your addictions, but rather controlled by the story of God's renewing activity to make all things new. Even you, even the punks <laughs> and the weird people, he is making a part of his story to show how great his grace is, how absolutely he can take things that are dead and make them alive and tell new stories to make trophies of his grace. And so... Here is this, the point of these first 11 verses. As we recite these big, these are the main Christianity 101 things. It should experience of like, I cannot believe this whole thing is true. Please help me live inside this. So all we need to do is receive the good news of all that God has done for you in Jesus. You see, Christianity is not about a code. It's about a person. Jesus is Christianity. And so when you receive Jesus and are involved in loving him with us and loving Jesus, you receive the good news of all that God has done for you in Jesus. So let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.